0: Hope you brought a Bible. You um, can now follow along with me as I read from it in a moment and, um, and preach from it in, right after that. But let me say two or three quick things. I, I, I hope you realize that was a father and a daughter, which is uh, really neat. It, when a, I had daughters. They wouldn't have ever sung with me. But um, uh, The second thing is kind of a, a, a well, two kind of announcements. Um, guys, you know that we. We make a big deal around here about the sacrament, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. We, we do it once a month. Um, we don't do it uh, once a quarter. We do it once a month. And there is a couple that has served you and served us very well for years, uh, Nancy and Bob Owens, who have prepared those elements for the, the Lord's Supper, um, you know, once a month for years, for health reasons, pretty serious health reasons. Um, they've had to step aside. And uh, we're looking for a couple who, um, who would find, who's not depleted with all the things that you're doing in the church. But uh, uh, here's something that, um, that you would like to do to serve the, the body here. So if that's you, um, let me know. Or Brent, uh, give me a call or whatever. We'd love to put you in that uh, saddle. And then the, the final thing is, uh, I think you know that this was the weekend that we were supposed to host Rosaria Butterfield over sexuality and the Christian, and it was canceled, canceled uh, by her because of her mother's um, illness, and she wanted to attend to her mother. And uh, fortunately, well, uh, well, fortunately she was there, but her mother did die on Thursday, Thursday. Um, The day right before she would have been here. So we're glad that it all worked out providentially that she could be there uh, instead of here, uh, even though we're disappointed that she wasn't. We're trying to reschedule. We'll let you know if that happens. Now, follow as I read, beginning at verse 5. I called this in the first service a very dense passage of Scripture, and, and indeed it is. Dense in the sense that it's so thick. With, um, with richness, not, not dense in the th- sense of, you know, I can't understand. You can understand it, but it's dense in, in all it contains. So let me read you just nine verses, beginning in verse 5. I'll read through verse 13. It reads like this. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him. so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God, this this word, this endures forever. Guys, that text that I just wrote you or read you um, confronts me with a rather unsavory choice. Here, here are my options. I could try to wade through the enormous genius of his argument along with you, which is exquisite, the argument and 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 very intricate, and you could get it, but it would take a while, an hour or so. <laughs> But if I were to preach an hour here, um, first of all, I would lose most of you along the way, um, giving you a quick nap before the Super Bowl. Um, and, and then uh, you wouldn't come back next week thinking that guy's going to preach an hour again. And then the volunteers in the nursery would stone me. <laughs> the, the other option um, is to cherry pick. And, and by that I mean this. I'm going to choose a couple of nuggets out of the passage, hoping not to lose much of his argument. At the same time, carrying you along with me, uh, not not putting you to sleep, and um, you know, finishing in 35 minutes. Um, So that's the option, obviously, that I've chosen, and that's what we're going to try and do this morning. But let me give you, let me try to illustrate what it is that I think we're doing. What I'm going to try to lead you in, okay? This is just an illustration of what I'm hoping we can do with this very dense passage to illustrate. Um, have you ever heard of Filene's Basement? Um, you know, it's it's got a certain... Uh, um, Reputation. I mean, it, it started in Boston. There was one in New York. There was one in D.C. I think. I, my, my wife and I have been to all of them. You know, when we go to Boston, we don't go to the harbor to see where they threw the tea, and we we head to Filane's Basement. You know, I've been there. I've been to all of them, and, and um, uh, it's closed now. It's closed in 2011, and I think it's I think it's come back online as a online store. But the the um, the place was famous, um, and part of the fame had to do with the bargains. In fact, um, the term bargain basement came from Filene's basement. Uh, the term rat's nest um, was used to describe the place because oftentimes they found nets, nests of rats in all the clothes that was down in the basement. Um, I, I guess the... <laughs> <laughs> the most humorous part of the of the reputation was that it was known to not have any dressing rooms, fitting rooms, and so in the midst of the the uh, the um, the sales, the big big sales, or, you know, where in fact um, where they said their slogan was, uh, "This is where uh, bargains were born, seventy percent off the famous brand," you know, so in the midst of all the, the sales. Because they were in the dressing rooms, people would disrobe right in the aisles to, um, to um, drown the clothes. It was said on numerous occasions <laughs> that in the midst of the frenzy, people lost their own clothes <laughs> in, in all of the, the stacks and piles of stuff and had to walk out in their underwear. Now, that didn't happen when, when we visited um, Filene's basement. But um, I, I tell you that story to say this, that's what we're about to do. Not the disrobing part. Um, but there's this, there's this big pile of truth right in this text. And we're going to dive in it, and we're going to try to pick out of it the richest of the rich. I mean, all of it's rich. But what we're going to try to do is pick out, we're going to rummage through this text and we're going to try to find the best bargains in there. All right? So that's what we're doing. Are you ready? Are you ready to dive in a heap of a text? Because this is certainly one of them. Um, here we go. Um, somewhere around 1095 A.D., which is the 11th century, ladies and gentlemen, somewhere in 1095 uh, A.D., the Archbishop of Canterbury, who was a guy by the name of Anselm, Now, you've not heard of Anselm, but you probably have. I mean, uh, did you know that the Republican debate last night on television was uh, held at um, St. Anselm's College? Now, you haven't heard of Anselm, but obviously somebody has. They named a college after him uh, up in New Hampshire. Uh, But Anselm in 1095, or around there, wrote a a massive work that uh, exists today. Uh, I mean, people still study it, still use it. It's a, it's a marvelous work, the title of which is Cur Deus Homo. It's a Latin phrase. I mean, it's only three words, Cur Deus Homo. And you, you probably can figure it out if I let you. You know, um, you know what Deus means. That's God. Homo, that means man. Cur just means why. Literally, the, the title uh, was Why God Man? Or... Why did God become man? Why did God have to become man? That was his book. 1,200 pages of answering that question. Why did God have to come? Couldn't he have sent an angel to do this? I mean, couldn't he have done it through the, uh, the sheer force of his will? Why, why did God um, take on flesh himself? Wasn't there a different way to save us? Now, guys, um, you may not have seen it when I, when I read the passage, but this dense portion of the book of Hebrews addresses that issue. Cur Deus homo. Why did God become man? Now, um... Anselm's answer to that question, I'm going to paraphrase, I mean, since he wrote 1,200 pages about it, I'm going, to, I'm going to make it a sentence. But, but um, Anselm said that it, no one but God could make the sacrifice, and no one but man should make the sacrifice. Thus, the God man needed to come perform the saving work. Now, That's Anselm's argument, and if you'd like to read it, uh, you know, there's 1,200 pages of uh, him establishing that point. But I would like for us to look uh, not so much at Anselm's work, but at this work. Anselm's work is not inspired. Oh, but this is. Um, That's Anselm, Curdeus Homo. But here's a portion inspired by the Holy Spirit addressing Curdeus Homo. Why did God become man? Now, guys, stay with me. We're going to start at verse 10. Let me read you, first of all, let me just read you verse 10. Um, (laughs) For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Did I say dense? I I really meant to mean... Really dense. There alone, ladies and gentlemen, is enough truth to keep us uh, busy for hours. But the first thing that you've got to do for this whole passage, this whole section, you've got to make sure that you know who the he is. For it was fitting that he, who's that? You've got to settle that one, ladies and gentlemen. And fortunately, it's very clear who the he refers to. It is referring to God the Father. And it goes on, or at least the text of the verse goes on, to tell us three things about God the Father. Look at it. It says, um, first of all, for whom and by whom all things exist. Oh, my goodness. That alone, ladies and gentlemen, should keep you busy and hopefully keep you awake. For whom and by whom are all things. Everything that exists are for him and by him. Um, that's a very succinct definition of what we mean when we say the sovereignty of God. Everything is for him and by him. That would include you and me. Everything is for him and by him. Everything exists exists by him and is for him. And all that he does is fitting um, it is fitting. Everything that you see him do, that is by him and for him, is fitting. Now, notice the second thing that it tells us about God the Father. It says, um, um, in bringing many sons to glory. Now, guys, um, first of all, glory. Now, that's an interesting choice of words to communicate heaven. He uses the term glory. He's describing something that the Father is doing and he's bringing somebody to glory or glory land or heaven. And notice, wherever that glory land place is, the way you're going to get there is that he's going to bring you there. And the ones who he does bring to glory land, they're called what? It's in the text, sons. He's going to bring sons to glory. And then, uh, in, in addition, how many? Well, not all, but many. The, uh, the Father, for whom everything exists and by whom everything exists, is going to bring many sons to glory. The third thing that you find out about God the Father, uh, it says, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Here's the third thing. Guys, it is He that is God the Father, and He alone who works with the Founder. Everything that the Father does, He does it through the Founder. Huh. How about that? And by the way, the, um, your translations may have different words. The Greek word is archagos, um, captain, prince, author, some translations, mine says founder. The the root of the word is arche, which means beginning. So I think founder is a good word. But the point is simply this. No one arrives in this glory land place without the founder. The founder is in charge of getting all those sons to glory. And then notice, ladies and gentlemen, what it says about him. Um, make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Um, now, guys, that's not to suggest that, the, that there needs to be some improvement made on the founder. It is simply suggesting that everything that the father does, he does through the son, and he is adding he is, um, his perfection, the, the founder's perfection, has to do with the work that he's go, about to accomplish through suffering. Now, we don't like that idea. Um, we don't like to talk about our own suffering. And uh, we don't like the idea that, um, that, the, that, the, that, thought, that, that God is going to accomplish redemption, but it's going to involve suffering. Well, if you don't like that one, let me, let me give you another one to chew on. You ready? This is, um, this is something that is found in Isaiah fifty three. 10 and it says this it was the will of Yahweh to crush him how do you like that it was the will of Yahweh to crush him why why would the father want to crush his son because ladies and gentlemen it is fitting It is fitting because that act is consistent with the character of God. You see, God cannot set aside his justice nor dispense with his justice even if it means saving you. The only way that he can save you is through the satisfaction of his justice. And so his son... Is the satisfactory payment of the debt that I created. And so um, my sin is satisfied by a payment made by the one who is called founder here, but is said to be crushed in Isaiah 53. Um, God does not set aside one ounce of his justice. So that he can accomplish my salvation. Christ must suffer to satisfy the justice of God. Okay? Um, the Father works on the Founder um, uh, to make him perfect through suffering, which brings us to verse 11. And the focus of... Are you, still, are you still rummaging? Hope so. Keep looking in here, ladies and gentlemen, because it's still got some great bargains in here. Verse 11 changes the focus. The focus now is on the founder. And notice what the text says about the founder. That is verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. Okay you will notice that the founder um, and his brothers are all identified with this notion of sanctification. That is, he who sanctifies and them who are sanctified. Again, stop right there. Um, Of all the descriptions that could have been used, to depict and explain and describe the sons that God is going to bring to glory, the one that is used here is that the ones that he's going to get to glory are the ones that are (coughs) sanctified. So if you want to know who all it is that belongs to Christ, I can tell you how to find them. Just look for the ones who resemble Christ. Because those people share his loves. They love truth. They love humility. They love sacrifice. They love mercy. They also share his hates. They hate sin. They hate deceit and lies. They hate ungodliness. Guys, holiness always flows from a relationship to holiness. Or, said differently, holy living is always the result of being related to the Holy One. Always. Always. The ones who are being taken by the Father to glory land or heaven are the ones who are sanctified. They're the ones that resemble the Savior. Because you see, if I'm in a relationship with Christ, it always results in holiness of life. Now, guys, I hope your Bibles are still open because I want you to see this. And you know, I'm a master overstater, but it is pretty hard to overstate this next phrase. The founder is bringing the sons to glory. The, the one who does the sanctifying and the sanctified, and then notice what is said next. All have one origin. Guys, um, what we are being told is that the founder and his brothers all share. The same origin. Jesus Christ and his people are indissolubly one. Between Christ and his people, there is a complete identification, a deep commonality. They share the same life. Those two, the sanctified and the sanctifier, they're one. Like... Christ and his church, they go together. Like the bride and the bridegroom, they go together. They don't exist separately. Guys, let me, let me see if I can exp- um, Maybe this will help. Um, if a very wealthy man was to marry a very poor woman, the moment that they were married, she would immediately become wealthy. Because the groom would then assume all of her liabilities, all of her credit card debt. Gang, um, when Christ takes us as his bride, he takes on all of my debts, all of my liabilities. We share a union. We are all of one Origin, whatever Jesus did, He did for us. I am in union with the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, ladies and gentlemen, if Jesus Christ resurrected, so will I. Because you see, Jesus Christ is indissolubly one with those for whom he died. If Jesus Christ loses, I lose. But if Jesus Christ wins, I win. And notice the text goes on to say, And he calls them brothers, and he's not ashamed to do so. (laughs) Hey, do you remember what you did? Hmm? Go take a look. Leave that pile of clothes in the basement, and go, go look in that closet where all your skeletons are hanging. You know what you did? I know what I did. And he is not ashamed to call me his brother (laughs) my elder brother identifies with his wicked brother and he's not ashamed to identify himself like that and then he affirms that fact that is I'm not ashamed to be identified with them He, he, he affirms that by quoting three Old Testament passages All of which are used to establish this idea that we are one, that we are, we all have one origin. Look, look at those three Old Testament passages. Uh, one is in verse 12. It comes from Psalm 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. That is, I and the brothers, we're all a part of the same congregation. We're going to be worshiping together uh, because we are indissolubly one. Second one, verse 13. And again, I will put my trust in him. That's from Psalm um, 18. And it says um, that I trust him and they trust him. There's a a commonality in the fact that we both trust him. And then we come to what I think is the real coup de grace. Number three, uh, in verse 13. And again, again, guys. He's using three Old Testament quotes to establish the union that exists between us to explain why he's not ashamed. And the third one is this. Behold I and the children of God you know the ones that he's given me me and the children which children the ones that God gave me. Me, says Jesus, and my children. Guys, Christ is not Christ without his people. It would be like a shepherd without a sheep or a, a father without children. Gang, gang, the Father is bringing many sons to glory by bringing them into a dynamic union with His Son. Folks, do you see what is being said about you in this text? Here's what's being said about you or about us. It's being said that the Father calls us sons, and the son calls us brothers, and that we share a common origin um, produced by the indwelling Holy Spirit, making us making us to have a union with Christ. Now guys. Curdeus Homo. Why did God become man? So he could enter into a covenantal oneness with those for whom he died. The ones that the Father had given him. Guys, one theologian put it this way, and this is brilliant. It's brief. He said, representation requires identification, not simulation. Do you get that? Well, no, I'm still working on my grocery list here. You know, wait a minute, wait a minute. Think, to represent me, he has to identify with me. He doesn't just, by sheer force of will, get it done. To represent me, he must identify with me. Representation requires identification, not simply simulation. You know, guys, um, one of the things that frustrates me as a 21st century pastor is that the, the church of Jesus Christ has become so simple that all we can think about is having a ticket to heaven stuck in our pocket and being sprayed with some coat of asbestos so that we won't burn in hell okay but ladies and gentlemen do you know that the work of redemption is far bigger than that representation requires identification. And that, my friends, is what I call the richest of the rich. Jesus represents me. He becomes one of me. And then dies in my place paying my debt And then he says, I know what you were, but I am not ashamed to be called your brother. (laughs) Let me tell you a story and I'll quit. And I'm hoping this story illustrates at least some of what I've said this morning. It's a true story, I think. Um, I think it was John Piper that told it. But I'm not sure of that. Uh, don't blame him if it's a bad story. Um, I read a lot, and um, I don't know where I get some of this stuff, but... so I think it's a true story. It's a story about two brothers who one was 14 years old and the other was 12. and their family lived close to a river. And so one beautiful day, they were out playing, uh, you know, in, around their countryside there, around the river, and just being the adventurous kind of young boys that they are, you know, 14 and 12. And, um, unbeknownst to them, a a, a portion of the riverbed had become, or the soil had become so unstable that it was functioning um, like quicksand. And so the boys were playing, and wouldn't you know it, they get caught in this quicksand-like material in the riverbed. Several hours passed, and, of course, the family grew very concerned. And so they sent out a, a, a search party to try and find them. It didn't take them long because they weren't really far from the house. It didn't take them long to find them. They found, and when they, when they found them, they found the 12-year-old brother stuck in that stuff up to his waist, screaming for somebody to come and help him. And so they race to this 12-year-old boy and and, and they're screaming the whole time that they're running towards him, where is your brother? Where is your brother? Do you know what happened to your brother? And the little boy said, yes! I'm standing on his shoulders! So are you, my friend. you and I are standing on the shoulders of our elder brother. The one who had to come because somebody had to pay for my guilt and shame. Cordeus Homo. Now you know. Our Father, I, I do pray that you will uh, take your word, this precious treasure of the church, and that you will use at least this small portion of it to show how rich indeed is the gospel that we preach. It's a gospel of salvation, but it's, it's a gospel that declares that we are all of the same origin with Christ Jesus. It's a gospel that declares we are indissolubly one with our Savior. And because he conquered the grave, so will we. And Father, if you've brought people here today who are, who are not yet in a place where they see the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of what Christ has done, there's only one way, Father, that they're ever going to see it. And that is if you open their eyes. Exchange their hearts of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Might their eyes become seeing eyes. And might they see what so many of us have seen before. That the only hope there is for us comes as a result of what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. O Lord Jesus, might you be magnified among us this morning. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name.